In connection with the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible, we present this summary of objections against the truthfulness of the Bible and the truthfulness of God, the divine author of the Bible. We have for some period of time been engaged in considering various objections that have been raised against the harmony and historical accuracy of the Bible. The standard and foundation of Christianity is the Bible. If it can be demonstrated that the Bible is unworthy of this place of authority, then the glorious message of the gospel falls in esteem along with it. Christianity is based upon the principle of divine revelation of truth. The Bible authoritatively and accurately records these revelations. It should be profitable to review these many objections that have been raised against the true account of truth and historical detail given in the Bible so that we may be better impressed with the profound evidences that the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, as is recorded in 2 Peter 1.21. In the first place we have seen that there is nothing inconsistent in the manner in which the Bible describes the nature of God. God is presented in the Bible as a living being who walks or dwells with men, performs definite acts at definite times, who rests, observes, thinks, and is reasoned with, remembers, is grieved, is jealous, is provoked to anger, and then causes his wrath to rest, is moved with compassion, who forgives and comforts, delights and rejoices, hearkens unto men, repents, changes his purposes, makes new decisions, and the like. Thus the Bible plainly implies that time is an element in God's existence and presents the moral nature of God in such an elevated manner that our faith is challenged. Certainly the Bible is consistent with itself in this wonderful presentation and leaves no room for objection when its plain revelations concerning the nature of God are accepted. In the second place to the objection that the Bible declares certain unconditional purposes expressed by God, which did not in fact come to pass as was stated that they would, we need have no other answer than the Bible presents, and need not in the least be embarrassed, since the Bible is not. If any have theological problems in this plain answer from the Bible, they may well examine their theological theories. God sent Jonah, for example, to declare the certain doom of Nineveh. After a conflict with God in disobedience, he finally entered into the streets of the great city of Nineveh with the unconditional message from God, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah was so firm and plain in God's message that the people, we are told, believed God and proclaimed a fast, which resulted in the greatest mass repentance 
recorded in the Bible with the hope that God will turn and repent that we perish not. There is no embarrassment whatever in the results as recorded in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repenteth of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. God was happy to change his mind in view of the circumstances and extend forgiving love to Jonah's sinful disappointment. This is the simple answer to such incidents occurring in the Bible. In fact, every time a repentant sinner is forgiven, God changes his mind concerning the sinner's deserved destination, so that it is no longer true, in his case, that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But in the third objection to the Bible, it was involved the use of anthropomorphisms in describing the nature of God. These are answered by saying that only those descriptions of the being and nature of God are anthropomorphisms that are obviously so to our common sense. Now an anthropomorphism is the use of descriptions of our human bodies and characteristics in setting forth the nature of God. For example, God is said to have eyes, hands, ears, feet, and the like. But since the Bible plainly indicates that God is a spirit, is invisible, is everywhere present, and so forth, the Bible leaves to our common sense to interpret as figures of speech those physical expressions that could not be true of the great God. We are not, however, to apply this rule to the essential actions of God's moral nature, or we eliminate the very traits of personality and evolve a philosophical infinitude for a God instead of the wonderful and awesome personal God of the Bible with all the profound moral attributes ascribed to deity. In the fourth place, we considered that concept of predestination which resolves itself into a fixity of action for all moral beings and echoes forth the conclusion of fatalism. It is denied that any such thing is taught in the Bible. The Bible everywhere sets forth the moral responsibility of all human beings in possession of moral faculties. Again and again it is declared that God is no respecter of persons. Therefore, man's destination is in his own hands. If the Bible also declared that God's election or predestination determined man's salvation and destiny, then we would have a Bible contradiction while the Bible does set forth God as making many sovereign decisions in his government of the affairs of the world and as being able to cause men to act in this way or in that way in making a tolerable world system in spite of man's rebellion, yet when it comes to man's salvation, 
the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus Christ is pictured as humbling his majestic greatness to appeal for entrance into man's heart as recorded in the third chapter of Revelation and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. This is not a contradiction. It merely describes the difference between caused action and moral action. When God causes and predisposes men to act, man is not held accountable. But man's decisions as to whether to continue in sin or to repent and be reconciled to God through faith in the death of Christ must be his own, and therefore he is morally responsible. When this clear distinction is made, the Bible does not contradict itself and is happily relieved of many embarrassments. In the next place, we considered the objection that the Bible presents man's depravity of heart as so compelling that he must follow sin as a matter of course and yet presents the guilt of his continuing in the pathway of sin as though such were a voluntary state of mind which can be discontinued whenever the sinner so chose. It is affirmed that the Bible presents sin as a matter of choice and not a matter of compulsion. The Lord Jesus blamed those of his hearers who continued in sin for doing so and even denounced the religious hypocrites for their added guilt in persisting in the way of selfishness after a brighter radiance of moral light had come into their possession. Man's will was the deciding factor as to whether he would have ears to hear or not, and whether he would turn from sin or not. For example, in the fifth chapter of John, in verse 40, our Lord Jesus said, And ye will not come unto me, that ye might have life. Certainly this applies that freedom of will that could terminate their sinful ways and come to the Lord Jesus if they would make up their mind in that direction. In the seventh chapter of John, verse 17, our Lord said, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. So the Lord Jesus plainly affirmed that it was man's will which determined his course. In the third chapter of Revelation and verse 22, we have this expression, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This same expression concludes each of these seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The Bible does present a depravity of heart that tends toward bondage, but charges sinners with guilt in following this pathway of selfishness. Temptation or solicitation to self-centeredness, which is the essence of sin, is a strong force to be reckoned with, but not an impossible or overwhelming force, 
Otherwise, moral responsibility is destroyed, and sinners are mere are guiltless machines working out the motions of blind forces within them. If no free moral choices, no moral action, no moral responsibility, no remorse, because it could not have been different, no self-punishment in the lost world, no if only, because there was no other course. Men are sinners because they hold down the moral light of reason which God sheds forth everywhere around them and continue in the unintelligent pathway of supreme self-interest. Men are sinners simply because they are continuing in sin. They do not continue in sin because they are in some mystical sense called sinners. Sin is not an it within us. It is we ourselves conducting ourselves in a wrong manner of life. This conduct the Bible charges all men with and grants to them the recompense for it and pronounces future judgment unless there is sincere repentance and a reconciliation to God in forgiving love through faith in the death of Christ. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the evidences of Thy Word and for the invitation of the Gospel. We pray that many may be fully persuaded of the truthfulness of Thy Word, may forsake sin and through faith in Christ find forgiveness and reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen.